Hey everyone. Take two. Evening, everyone. Much better. So my name is Shigan. I'm one of the elders here at Rehope. And I'm going to be speaking to you tonight from 1 Samuel. Now, I was talking to Brian about what to talk about tonight a couple of months ago now, actually. He kind of very generously said, well, whatever you want to talk about, whatever is on your heart, just feel free. And I said, well, do you want me to keep going in 1 Samuel, get back into that? And he said, well, no, 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 really, honestly, it's up to you. And I said, actually, you know what, Brian, there's actually a verse from 1 Samuel that I always find really challenging. And I think that maybe I'll talk about that. And so as I was doing a bit of research and doing a bit of preparation for this, I thought I'll go back to the start and look at the podcasts and stuff um, and see, try and get a context of what we're kind of thinking about as we work through First Samuel. And so I kind of scrolled back, podcast, Reho podcast, and then listened to the very first talk that Brian gave about First Samuel, the introduction to the, the, the series. And it just kind of came out at me because I think the pretty much the only verse that Brian quotes in that talk from um, August 21st is the verse that's up on your screen hopefully soon, which is Samuel talking to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And I've always, oh, I came across this verse probably years ago, decades ago now, and I've always found it challenging because I think it always speaks to me. Any, any season, any situation of life, it always speaks because it makes me stop and think about what I'm doing. As I was thinking about more about it and the actual timing of this Sunday, it kind of occurred to me that actually this verse is a great verse for where we're at as a church. As we've come out of a, a season of fasting and praying and waiting for God, this verse actually speaks to that season. It speaks to us if we're at the start of a new year, start of a new era. I don't know what your normal rhythm or routine is like, but I tend to find that kind of December into January, I often kind of stop and reflect. If you're kind of midlife like me, then you think about your life and where it's going and what you've done with it, and then you think about the year that's been and the year that's coming. And it's often a time of reflection and a bit of introspection to think, well, what will this new year bring? And I think this verse is relevant Another way I think this verse is relevant is that we are about to set out in five Sundays' time, four weeks' time, five Sundays, we will be opening a new location in the south side, a couple of miles away. And so we're about to go into a new season. And again, it's a verse that speaks right into that. And this story and this verse from 1 Samuel 15 is relevant. And when you read this story, it's one of the stories that's kind of bizarre, and always, you don't always get the full context of it until you understand the background of why God commands Saul to do what he's asked to do in 1 Samuel 15, and why God's response to Saul's disobedience is so um, extreme, if you like. And I was thinking, if you're making a film of this, you would kind of have this kind of introduction, a wee setup, and then flashback to, you know, 200 years earlier or something like that, and you would flashback all the way back to the book of Exodus 
you'd have two or three quick scenes to explain why this happened. And the first scene you would flash back to would be in Exodus 12. And this is a scene that happens literally as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. And they have been set free. They've crossed the Red Sea. And they're starting to kind of wander into the desert. And this passage describes that there were about 600,000 men on foot. Besides women, children, and also lots of animals. And so you can imagine that if there are 600,000 men, they're probably the same again in women and, and children. So some people reckon there may have been as many as 2 million people meandering through the desert. Um, and if you can imagine what happens when you travel in a big crowd like that, is that some people walk fast and move fast and are at the front, and some people are slower, older, with disabilities or whatever else, and can't walk as fast. So they gravitate towards the back. Or if you're like me and you're a slow walker on a stroller, you gravitate towards the back. And so the next thing you would flash forward to is in Exodus 17. And what you see in that is a description of the first battle that the nation of Israel ever fought. And it's quite a famous story. It's one that if you've ever been to Sunday school, you'll have come across at some point, for sure. This kind of famous story of the Amalekites coming out to challenge Israel. And it says in 17 verse 8, the Amalekites came out and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. So Moses says to Joshua, choose some of our men, go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites, it says, and Moses and Aaron went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held, his hands, held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. And so it's a great physical illustration, isn't it, of as long as Moses is able to keep his hands up in prayer, then the battle kind of goes that way. But whenever it starts to get tired, the battle goes that way. And eventually, with help of Aaron and Ur, and her, his brother, he keeps his hand up, and Joshua over overcomes them. In verse 13, it says, So Joshua overcame the Amalekites with his sword. But what's interesting, and this is the context for 1 Samuel 15, is what God says next. Then the Lord, then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this in a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Then it says, Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. Okay, second scene. Last kind of preamble to 1 Samuel 15 is in Deuteronomy 25. And this bit is where Moses is not going into the promised land, so he's called the nation of Israel together, and through the whole of Deuteronomy, it kind of gives him a bunch of instructions as to remember this, and remember that, and remember what God said about this, and remember what God said about that, and you need to remember this is really important. And one of the things that he tell, tells them they have to remember is in verse 17 of uh, chapter 25 in Deuteronomy. Moses says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. 
When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. God says, remember, through Moses, remember and do not forget. And so there's this kind of, pro, kind of judgment that God has made on the nation of Amalek that he has said to the people of Israel, don't forget when we're going to come back to this. And I think a quick digression, but a point that has to be made is that this happens in Deuteronomy. First Samuel happens centuries later. And we, we should not lose sight of the fact that God is just and God is good. And because he is just and because he is good, he will always bring judgment. He will always make sure that everything that is done that is wrong or good is accounted for. Now, sometimes between what's done that isn't right and this judgment, there's an interlude of grace, if you like. But it will always come. One of the things that's great for us in this generation is that we know that we are under a season of grace where we, are, we have that chance. Because of God's love, we have the chance to escape his judgment. He's made a way for us to avoid the judgment that definitely is coming. And it's a relatively easy thing to do in the sense that all we have to do is accept the fact that his son, his son died to pay the punishment for the things we've done wrong relatively easy, not relatively straightforward, and it helps us to escape judgment. But God will always bring judgment. And some of the stories in the Old Testament that are hardest to read, hardest to understand, hardest to make sense of, are these stories. When God will appoint an individual or a king or a tribe or a judge or sometimes a foreign country to judge Israel, sometimes the Old Testament, to, to execute his judgment and we can't always rationalize it or explain it or, or explain it because we don't really understand it and we are just so lucky that we get to not experience God's judgment because of Jesus so Saul is given a very clear mandate as to what he needs to do to be the instrument of God's judgment and the Amalekites for the terrible things they did when we plundered and um, were violent and took advantage of those who were weak and weary and slow in the nation of Israel. So we get to our bit in 1 Samuel. Quite a chunk. But I'll read the first sort of eight, nine verses that kind of sets the story up for us. So Samuel uh, says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you, king, over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up out of Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Tel Aim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Get forward to verse 7. And it says, Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people, 
he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs. Everything that was good, these they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So what Saul does is he almost, almost completely obeys God. Now, what's important and what we sometimes don't miss in, in the translation is that God, the, the word that God used for Saul is the word haram, which is a specific word that's used to describe things that have to be given only to God. Um, things that were you have to give to God in sacrifice or sometimes in judgment. So when they were coming out of uh, Egypt through the wilderness and Exodus, there were times when God would say, that is haram, that is for me, that is not to be given or done, given to anyone else. And so when Saul kind of violates God's command and takes what should be given to God, God's response is quite an interesting one. I found it, when I read it, quite challenging. Because in verse 10 it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all night. And we don't really appreciate, unless you understand the original Hebrew, the depth of the feelings that these kind of words that seem relatively um, euphemistic, what they, ex what, what they explain. The, the word for kind of God's sense of grief is the one that we talk, every, talk about every Sunday, Genesis 6, 5 and 6 where God says that he was grieved because of man's wickedness or his heart was filled with pain. A lot of times we see that kind of same phraseology used when it talks about sudden death of young people or unexpected death. So in the Old Testament, we read about um, Rebekah dying, for example, or when Jacob is told that Joseph, his son, has been killed by wild animals by the other brothers, that was a response or when David and Bathsheba have a baby, a love child basically, and the baby dies, the, their emotional response is this kind of gr this, this grief, this sense of loss, this sense of regret. And the other thing that struck me is just how Samuel's response was also an emotional one. It says that he was troubled. That's, the, that's what my translation says, he was troubled. But again, it's deeper than that. It's an emotional response. It's a real kind of burning aching sense of, oh, that really, really hurts. And then it says he cried out to God, but it was more than just a cry, it was a shriek almost of just desperation or of sadness, a deep, deep regret. As an aside, it's interesting to kind of see Paul's, Saul's response to what comes next, because Samuel comes to challenge him about what he's done wrong, Okay. And Saul's response is a bunch of excuses. Was it, I didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't really me. I had good intentions. I tried to do the right thing. Uh, maybe, maybe it was because of the guys. It wasn't me. It was their fault. And then he's afraid. It was me. They made me do it. I was afraid of them. And I, you, know, you could almost preach a whole sermon on these four things that we do sometimes, that we say when God speaks to us, that God gives us clear instructions why we don't do them. But regardless of kind of Saul's excuses, God's response is fairly categorical, okay? So when Saul, so again, I think, imagine, you, imagine the scene. Samuel walks up to Saul. Samuel knows what's happened because God has told him. 
but Saul's disobeyed me. So he walks up to Saul to say, well, how'd you get on? How'd it go? And then it says, a bit kind of, it's a bit kind of comedy-like, actually, in um, verse 14, or 13 and 14. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel, Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle? And it's almost this thing we think, I, I can see some animals, so why are there animals? Why are there sheep? Why are there cattle at a military camp? And then Saul gives his bunch of excuses. And Samuel just says, stop. Stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and has sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy these wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war in them until they're wiped out. Why then did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul gives another bunch of excuses. And Samuel says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. And the final kind of sentence, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. It's quite, you know, like the gavel comes down, that's it, it's done. And it's important to say that you can read that and think, oh man, that's harsh, that's tough. And the context is we need to remember this wasn't the only, the, the only thing that solved it that wasn't quite right. It was interesting actually prepping this and looking at the chapter before this. We've just come out of a season of fasting and praying at Rehope, and we've tried to do it with grace and thought and planning and you read the preceding chapter in 1 Samuel 14 where Saul organizes a fast a communal fast that no one knows about and and the sentence for missing the fast is death so Saul was not always the best of kings and it's just that this particular story was if you like the final and the kind of worst thing that he did where he explicitly disobeyed God's order God's order Saul breaks covenant with God the premise of how God interacted with the nation of Israel in the, in the Old Testament was very much like that, where God says, I will, you will be my chosen people. I will bless you. I will honor you. I will give you victory. I will make your farm to have lots of harvest. I will do a lot for you. I will bless you richly. And you will be my people, and I will be your God. And my bit of the deal is that I will bless you guys. Your bit of the deal is that you will walk in obedience to me. And if you do that, then we have a contract, a covenant. And if you don't do that, then we don't have a contract. And so what Saul does is to break covenant with God. And God kind of has no choice but say, well, you know what? You haven't obeyed me, and so you are no longer king. And it's quite sobering. And it's quite sobering when you think of it, kind of the, 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 the almost two-dimensional, what God wants from us is obedience, and we need to obey God. End of, end, end of story. And one of the things I love is how when you start to think about that and then look at that through the prism of the New Testament, the simplistic God is up there, we have to obey him, is explained in a way that kind of makes more sense. 
And when Jesus is talking towards the end of his life and um, his last kind of big talk to his disciples before he goes to the cross, he talks about this stuff. He, again, similar to Moses in Deuteronomy, he is saying to the disciples, this is a, this is a bunch of stuff that I want you to remember. I'm about to get arrested. I'm about to get tortured. I'm about to get taken away from you. So here are the main bullet points. And one of the things that Christ stresses again and again and again is around the issue of obedience, but he amplifies it and explains that actually obedience and obeying God is about loving God. And he says that four or five times in quick succession in John 14 and 15. And we see him saying, so the first thing he says is in John 14, 15, where he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. In verse 21 of uh, John 14, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and show myself to him. And then it says further down, um, whoever, 14, 23, and 24, it says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to my Father who sent me. And the last point he makes about that is in the next chapter in 15, verse 10, where he says the same thing in a different way again. He says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. And what that kind of says to me is that obeying God and obedience to God is a really big deal. Jesus equates obedience to God and the things that he tells us and the things that he wants us to do with loving God. And I was thinking a wee bit about it. It's almost like, for me, obedience is like God's love language. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with the concept of the theory of the five love languages, that, you know, there are five ways that people feel loved. Husbands, wives, sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, good friends, boyfriends, girlfriends, anyone you're kind of in a relationship with, there are five main ways that we feel loved. Yes? No? Familiar? Yeah? Good. Okay, so physical touch... Uh, words of affirmation, gifts, quality time, acts of service, things you can do that will communicate to somebody that you love them. And what this says to me, what Jesus is saying here, is that obedience is God's love language. That the way we show God that we love him and we care for him and that he matters to us and we value him is that we obey him out of a heart of love because we love him. And as I was thinking and reflecting on obedience, I kind of got thinking about the ways and the things that God asks me to obey him about and why this verse speaks to me so much. That, you know, to obey is more important than for me to do kind of big, crazy acts of sacrifice. And I was thinking about how, you know, God asks me to do things that are easy, obvious things sometimes. And sometimes it asks me to do things that are really difficult and, you know, crazy things. And I was thinking, actually, if I think about it, there's a spectrum of things a spectrum of obedience. And at one end of the spectrum are the kind of things that we know we should be doing. These are the things that are, you know, just what I've called just do your job obedience. Just do the things that God has asked you to do. You know, so 
relationships, relationship roles, your job. Um, we, as people who say that we know God and love God and walk with God, should be the ones who are hard workers, who are at work on time, who are dependable, who put the extra shift, and who work with a good attitude, for example. We are the ones as sons and daughters that should honor our parents and respect them and value them and esteem them, or as, you know, that verse that always speaks to me, you know, fathers do not exasperate your children, you know, stuff like that that God has said that's kind of black or white that shouldn't be difficult things to do, but we just don't, we often let them slide. I often let them slide. And now the other extreme is the things that are difficult, things that you think, man, I'm not sure I can do that. That's a big deal. That requires commitment. That's something that I should take on that I don't have the strength or the capacity to do. That's something that requires a huge step of faith. That's something that um, is risky. That's something that's costly. And I guess the challenge for us as we come out of, you know, a bunch of, a week of praying and fasting and waiting on God is asking ourselves that. You know, what are the things that God is asking us to do as we've come out of a season of fasting? What are the ways that God wants to answer the things that are on our prayer cards through us? Um, as we go into a new year, a new season, 2019, what are the things that God might want to do in you or through you? What's he saying to you? You know, as we're about to launch across the river in five, five Sundays' time, what is God asking you to do? How is he asking you to be involved in that? Because, because what Jesus says is that obedience and obeying God is the purest, truest measure of how much we really love God. Obedience and whether we listen to and whether we stop, we heed, we listen, and we obey is actually, according to Jesus, it's actually the truest measure of whether we love God or not. Challenges off the back of that. First challenge is if you were praying and fasting with us this week, you will have a prayer card. On one side, you'll have things that you wrote down to pray for yourself uh, or around your situation or circumstances. On the other side, will be things that we're praying for as a church. So first challenge is look through that prayerfully and say, God, what are the things that you want to do through me about the stuff I've been praying and fasting about this week? Because God probably wants to use you for some of the stuff in the card to do with the church and to do with your circumstance, okay? If you're doing that, be ready for the answer because if you ask that sincerely, God will answer you and he'll tell you to do things. So make sure you're ready for that before you pray that prayer. Then the other thing is, as I was saying, some things to do with obedience are really obvious and you know it in your heart of hearts and you know, I really should be doing that. I really shouldn't be doing that. So if, as I've been speaking tonight, something pops into your head, then I would encourage you to let, let it go beyond a thought or a conviction and in the response time afterwards as we're kind of praising and worshiping, make a commitment. Make a commitment to do something about it. Yeah? Commitment to, to do it. If it's something easy, simple, fine. If it's something big, something costly, something risky, something radical, 
then go and get some prayer about it. The prayer ministry time, get someone to do say, listen, this popped into my head. It's a big deal. I cannot imagine how I could do that. Just pray for me about that. So do that. Second challenge. Third challenge is think about the issues and the struggles you have with obedience. All of us, all of us will have areas in our lives that we struggle to really obey God, and we all do. Well, I do anyway, but we all do, don't we? Things that you struggle to do. So think about some of these things. Get some prayer tonight at the prayer ministry time. But more importantly, maybe if you're in a read-through group, we've got a couple of friends you can trust or talk to openly. Get it out there. Get accountability. Get help. Accountability and prayer for whatever it is, whatever things you struggle with, do with obedience. Let's pray. Ah, thank you for your word. Thank you for this verse. This verse which always, always, always speaks to me because it makes me stop and say all the stuff that I'm doing, all the busyness in my life, all the activities that I'm doing, is it just habit or ritual or duty or am I actually walking in obedience with you? And I just pray for all of us, Father, that as your Holy Spirit speaks to us, that the things that we need to do different, not out of a sense of guilt or out of a sense of anything but every response of love for you show us how to walk in obedience show us how to persevere in obedience show us how to repent if we need to and start to pursue a path of obedience Father work in our lives, I thank you because you're a good God, a good Father and you love us you're doing good things you want to do great things in us through us, around us and with us in this new season. Help us to be responsive to your spirit and to walk in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.